So there's a famous playwright named Tom Stoppard. He's, uh, you might recognize him. One of his more famous works is Shakespeare in Love. He's won a couple of Academy Awards and Tony Awards. And one of his plays, Jumper, one of the characters says this. There was a calendar date, a moment, when the onus of proof passed from the atheist to the believer, when quite suddenly the nose had it. See, many people today don't believe in God. They don't believe in Jesus, the Bible, and Christianity. And some have even given up hope in the church. And what started with the Western Enlightenment in the late 17th and 18th centuries has continued to gain traction over the last 200 years. And what Stoppard is saying is that that burden of proof, that obligation to provide sufficient evidence to prove something as true, shifted from those who uh, disbelieve to those who believe. The result is that many people today find believing in Jesus simply unbelievable because that burden of evidence has shifted. So it used to be that the, the, the atheist, the agnostic, had the burden of proof to explain their position. And now that's just taken for granted. And now that burden of proof has shifted to the believer such that if the believer is not able to provide sufficient evidence, then they would say, well, then your belief is uncredible and invalid. Some people today don't believe because they don't like organized religion. When people say that to me, I always laugh because I go, you know, I'm a pastor and I don't like organized religion either. Some people find Christianity to be morally restrictive, narrow-minded, or on the wrong side of history. Some don't want to be labeled or included under that big umbrella of evangelicalism. Some people don't believe because they don't find it's been useful They think maybe it's no longer relevant, or at worst, they've found it to be harmful. Maybe as you've talked to people, they've said, well, that's good for you. It just wasn't part of my upbringing. Some people find it hard to believe in in God because it's based on the Bible. And if you read the Bible, it's full of miracles and stories of the supernatural. And some are simply just too busy with the everyday stuff of life to be concerned about the afterlife. And some simply don't like it. Our text today is an extended discussion about unbelief. And it's interesting because if you've been with us for a while, we talk a lot about belief and what it means to have faith in God. And today's sermon is going to be about unbelief. What is unbelief? What causes it? Where does it come from? And how can we move from a place of unbelief to a place of belief? John is bringing the first part of his gospel to a close. We've been walking through the gospel of John over the last half of a year. And chapters 1 to 12 detail the public ministry of Jesus. So throughout these last 12 chapters, we've seen these seven signs of Jesus. We've seen Jesus turn water into wine. We've seen Jesus cleanse the temple. We saw Jesus heal the nobleman's son. We've seen him heal the lame man. We saw him feed the multitudes and walk on water. We've seen him heal a man born blind from birth. And we've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. And we've heard Jesus make definitive statements about his identity. And in no uncertain terms, Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to salvation. I am the good shepherd of your soul. And I am the resurrection, and the life. And all of it, 
every bit of chapters 1 to 12 has been to serve John's overall purpose in writing. And we've, we've mentioned this verse nearly every sermon tonight. And I want to keep putting it before you because John tells us exactly why he wrote his gospel. Don't you love it when an author doesn't, doesn't play coy about it and says, this is why I wrote what I wrote. Here's my thesis statement. Here's what I want you to walk away with so that you don't miss it. I would have loved that in English. It always felt like I was trying to figure out why did this person write this book. And here John says, here it is. You don't have to guess. John 20, verse 31. John says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote his gospel, that you would know that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ, the Messiah. And that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. And at this midway point in his gospel, John gives us a summary of what's been going on. And he gives us a realistic picture. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't spin the numbers. He's not a news anchor. He tells it like it is. And there's a soberness in our text today. Did you hear it? Did you feel it when I was reading it today? Because belief and unbelief is a matter of life and death. As we look at John 12, verses 36 to 50, we're going to learn three things about unbelief. The first thing we're going to learn is this. Unbelief leads to condemnation. That's part of that soberness. That's part of that reality check. Unbelief leads to condemnation. Secondly, we're going to find that unbelief follows the desires of your heart. Unbelief isn't something that just happens to you by accident. It follows the desires of your heart. And third, we're going to find that unbelief is actually a part of God's plan. That is, God is sovereign and, and is working out all of history towards his ends and purposes. That unbelief doesn't take him by surprise that he has a plan for it. And then at the end, we're going to apply the text and ask, so how does a person move from a place of unbelief to a place of belief, right? Because that's John's goal. Not that we would stay in a place of unbelief, but that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, that we would have life. So let's start together in verse 36 as we learn that unbelief leads to condemnation. Now let's back up one verse real quick. I didn't read this, but I want you to get the context of what's going on. Verse 36b. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, if you, if you go back and look at what Jesus had just been talking about, he gave a final public invitation for the crowd to believe in him as the light of the world. And after this, Jesus departs and doesn't go out into public for teaching or performing signs anymore. And it's at the Passover. This is the last Passover in the final week of the earthly life of Jesus Christ. And so if you remember, I've told you this before, at, at the Passover, thousands upon thousands of Jews would come to the city. It's one of the pilgrim feasts. If you're a good Jew, you do everything you can at three times a year to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. And this Passover one is a big deal. So 
thousands of Jews flood the city. And we've already seen in the, in the earlier chapters of John that, um, uh, that, that, that there's been um, crowds gathering. Um, if you think about the tension of the plot, the Pharisees and the leaders are already plotting to kill him. And there's a lot of murmur going on. Jesus has just entered on, on, the, on the back of a donkey and crowds were lined up, hailing him as their king, laying down the palm branches saying, will you bring us peace? And there's tons of people in the city. There's tons of rumors going on about Jesus. And, and, and there's a plot to kill him. There is a, there's a heightened level of awareness. And Jesus is giving his final public invitation to believe in him as the light of the world. And after that, it says Jesus departs and doesn't go out into public again. The next time the crowds will see Jesus, he will be tried as a criminal and hung on a cross. The rest of our passage this morning, what I read to you earlier in verses 37 to 50, is a summary. It's John as the narrator pulling back from the action. So in, in one sense, the narrative doesn't move forward in any of the stuff we're going to talk about today. It's John pulling back and saying, okay, I'm about to transition into this private time where Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples and before the crucifixion narrative, and he, 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 he summarizes what's been going on. He's saying, listen, after three years of public ministry, here's where we're at. A lot of people didn't believe, and some did. And he's going to summarize that for us today. And in these verses, verses 37 to 43, John is going to give us a theology of unbelief. And that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning because we want to understand, okay, if unbelief is so deadly, if it leads to death, what is it? Where does it come from? What's going on? Verse 37. Though he, that's talking about Jesus, had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Let's stop right there. John gives us a sober reality check that many people did not believe in him. You might be thinking, man, if I had seen those signs, if I had seen water turned into wine, if I had seen people who were lame and sick and dead raised, if I had seen them healed, if I had seen him take a little boy's lunch and feed 5,000 people, if I had seen him walk on the water, I would believe in that guy, right? And what John is telling us is that unbelief is, it goes much deeper than that, that many saw these signs with their eyes and yet still did not believe. Remember, all of these signs were meant to confirm his identity and to stir up belief in people. But John says, despite the many signs done before their very eyes, they still did not believe. And when you read verse 37, verse 37 places the responsibility, the accountability or the culpability of unbelief on those who saw the signs and yet did not believe, right? You just read it plainly. It says, they saw the signs and yet they did not believe. John 3.18 emphatically makes this point. Look, with, look of, uh, at it with me together. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Did you see it? It says, whoever, does not, whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned. There is a weight, a responsibility, a culpability to believe. Look at me. 
It is no small thing that God has sent his son. It is not trivial. It is the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. It's the greatest gift this world has ever received. And there's a weight to that. There's a responsibility there such that whoever rejects the gift of God's son rightly receives condemnation. Like I know even that word is so unpopular in our culture, but it would be absolutely unloving if I lied to you about what the Bible says is true, right? It is not loving to lie to someone. It is loving to speak the truth and love, to tell someone this is reality. Without the free gift of God's forgiveness through Christ, look at me, your sins cannot be forgiven and you cannot be reconciled to God the Father. So the first thing that John wants us to know is this sober reality check. As we build out this theology of unbelief, he wants us to know we are responsible for our unbelief. Have you ever had to tell someone a hard word? You knew it was the right thing to do, but you knew going into that conversation, they're not going to receive this. It's going to be hard. And what I have to say, they're not going to like. But you just knew. I can't look myself in the mirror unless I tell them like it is, right? That's what this is. This is John saying, I can't sugarcoat it. I have to tell you, unbelief leads to condemnation. We are held responsible for our unbelief. Another, another way to say it is this. Our unbelief is a guilty unbelief. It's not neutral. Our unbelief leads to condemnation. That's the first thing John wants you to know. The second thing is this. Unbelief follows the desires of your heart. Look with me again at verse 37 and following. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now let's stop there for a minute. We're going to look at these two passages that John quotes from Isaiah. He's going to quote a little bit of, out of Isaiah 53, and he's going to quote a little bit out of Isaiah 6. And it's important, when you see in your Bible that there's a quotation from another part of the Bible, that's an invitation for you to go look that thing up. If you have a good Bible, it'll even tell you where it is. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You just have to look at the footnote. And it'll tell you, hey, this quotation comes from Isaiah 53. This quotation comes from Isaiah 6. Now, John tells us that both of these are about Jesus and his glory. So even though Isaiah wrote this 700 years before this moment, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah saw the glory of Christ and was speaking about him. Each one of these passages is going to give us insight into this principle that unbelief follows the desires of our heart. Let's look at Isaiah 53, verse 1 through 3. This is part of what's quoted already. This part right here. Who has believed what he has heard from us, right? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then if you go into these next verses, this is what John is getting at. 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Pay attention. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Friends, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be rejected and that for the most part, when the Messiah came, the people of God would not believe in him. That's what John has already told us. He said, though Jesus did many signs, what? They still did not believe. Speaking of Jesus, Isaiah said that he had no form or majesty that people would be drawn to. He had no outward beauty that they would desire him. And therefore, he would be despised and rejected by men. Simply put, Jesus was not the kind of Messiah they wanted. Now, John also quotes Isaiah 6.10. If you go and read Isaiah 6, it's when Isaiah is receiving his his commission as a prophet. And he has this, this vision of being in the throne room of God. He is given a glimpse into the glory of God seated on his throne. And this is what he says about it in Isaiah 6, 1 to 3. I saw the Lord upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and one, another, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God allows Isaiah to see God in his glory And then tells him in verse 10 that those who hear his message will not understand. Let's jump down to verse 9 and 10. And he said, go and say to these people. So he's receiving his commission, right? So Isaiah is saying, hey, I will will serve as one of your prophets. What should I go say? And this is what he tells him to go say. Go say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now that is a confusing passage at first glance. But if we take these passages from Isaiah and put them together, here's what we get. Isaiah 53, the passage I just read, tells us that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, on the one hand would be this lowly servant, a man without earthly majesty or beauty. There'd be nothing about his outward appearance that would draw men to him. So if I could modernize it, it'd be like this. He would be unelectable by the people. He would not be a great military leader. If he was living today, he would never be in a Hollywood movie. He wouldn't be the CEO or chairman of the board. He would never make the cover of Forbes magazine. He wouldn't start a nonprofit or an NGO. He wouldn't win the Nobel Prize. He wouldn't receive honorary doctorates. He wouldn't be published. Simply put, he would not fit our expectations and there's nothing about him that would just instinctively draw us to him. He wouldn't have that little check mark on his Twitter account. Probably wouldn't have a Twitter account. He's too holy for that, right? There'd be nothing that you, if he was here today, There'd be nothing about him that if you saw him passing by on the street that you would just be drawn to, right? He would not fit our expectations. He would not fit our desires for a savior. And therefore, we would despise and reject him. 
That's what Isaiah 53 is saying. Isaiah 6 is telling us that the Messiah would be the very definition of glory and splendor. Remember, in that first part of Isaiah, it said he, he had this vision of the throne room and, and there were these seraphim, these majestic angels with wings all over the place and eyes everywhere. And all they do, they're created just to simply say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They've been repeating it since uh, the moment of creation. Just, remo- just saying out loud his holiness and his glory. And Isaiah, John tells us, Isaiah saw Jesus. Jesus had that kind of glory. He's the very definition of glory and splendor. Elsewhere in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. His majesty is unparalleled, and his holiness is impeccable. And what Isaiah is telling us is that in Isaiah 53, when people saw him in his humanity, that there'd be nothing that would draw him to him. And these moments when he displayed his glory, it would be such that uh, instead of being drawn to that glory and light, it would blind them. John Piper is really helpful here. He says, it looks like the way God planned to blind and harden many in Israel was by sending them a Messiah whom he knew they were wired to reject. They did not want his lowliness. And they did not want his pretensions to glorious deity. And that's what they would get. And God knew the effect it would have. And he sent him anyway. And thus blinded them with the human weakness and divine glory of Jesus. You see, God didn't send a Messiah according to our wants. But he did send a Messiah according to our needs. And for many Simply, Jesus is not who they want. He does not fit their desires, and so they reject him. And John tells us that ultimately, we either love the glory that comes from man or the glory that comes from God. Look at verse 42 and 43. John said, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, while we don't know whether those mentioned here had authentic faith, that's not really the point that John is making here. What John is pointing to here is the barrier to genuine life-giving faith. He says, what keeps faith from growing, what keeps faith from leading to ultimate belief is that you love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Do you see it? Our unbelief follows the desires of our heart. What you love, you will put the full weight of your desires and your attention and your time and your talents towards. If we love man-made glory more than God-given glory, then you will despise and reject Christ and remain in your unbelief. And your eyes will be blind to him and your hearts will be hardened to him. The man of Isaiah 53 did not fit the expectations and desires of the people of God. The man of Isaiah 53 is not patterned after man-made glory. The things that we instinctively look at, the people we instinctively elevate, the man of Isaiah 53 does not fit that description. And so when Jesus came as the suffering servant 
of Isaiah 53, he was not the Messiah they wanted, so they rejected him. But when Jesus claims to be God himself, and those definitive I am statements that I am the resurrection and the life, I am the bread of life. If you're hungry, you need to eat what I have to give you. When he said that I and the Father are one, when he made those definitive statements, unifying himself to God, when he claimed to have the very glory of God himself, people rejected him. Why? Because he represents a glory that will not take a back seat to your glory. Right? If you're about fulfilling your glory, about fulfilling your name, then the glory of God will be rejected. And the result is unbelief and rejection that follows the desires of your heart. John wants us to know that our unbelief is not accidental. It follows the desires of our heart. And as such, it's a guilty unbelief that leads to condemnation. And now finally, the third part. Unbelief is part of God's plan. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. When I say unbelief is part of God's plan, I don't mean that it just merely happens. I don't mean that it's circumstantial. I don't mean even that God is really good at working around our unbelief to make sure that his plans come to fruition. What I'm saying is this. God is sovereign over every single detail of human history, including unbelief. It is not merely circumstantial. It is providential now before we get to the why of god's plan like why god would superintend and plan unbelief we need to come to grips just with the words themselves so i'm going to reread verses 37 to 38 and i want you to listen for indicators that unbelief is part of god's plan okay though he had done many signs before them they still did not believe so that The word spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John just said that many people did not believe in him. And then he used those little words, so that. Which means for this reason, the word of Isaiah, the word of God might be fulfilled. So not only... Was this unbelief foreseen in scripture by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before it happened? He's also saying it was necessitated. Israel's unbelief was foreseen and predicted. And because of that, it's also necessitated. Why? Because if it's predicted by the word of God, it has to come to pass. If God says this is what's going to happen, guess what? It's going to happen because when God speaks, it's as good as done. And then, if verses 37 and 38 weren't enough, verses 39 to 40 make it even more clear. Look at, just look at the, the, the soberness, the reality of 39. Therefore, they could not believe. They were unable to believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's hardened their eyes, blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I will heal them. Friends, because unbelief is part of God's plan, it cannot happen otherwise. Now, not only did God plan for uh, that unbelief, he also took steps to ensure. Did you hear that? Who's blinding their eyes? He. God is blinding their eyes. And God is hardening their hearts. 
He blinded their eyes. He hardened their hearts so that they could not spiritually see or by faith understand with their hearts and ultimately turn towards God. Now, I'm like you. When I read that, I go, what is going on? That seems like the opposite of what I would think a God would want to do. I would think he'd want to, what, open their eyes, give them understanding so that they would turn and heal. Again, at this point, I'm not asking that you understand God's why behind the what. I'm not even asking that you like what you've just read. I'm just simply asking that you along with me, I'm trying to take you on the journey that I went through preparing this text, that you just look at the words themselves and go, yeah, that is what it's saying. Like that's what those words mean. It's plain in the text that the unbelief of Israel was not accidental or circumstantial, but it was providential. It was part of God's plan. So earlier I told you that our unbelief, we're held accountable for it, right? That we're responsible for it. So on the one hand, we have human responsibility over here. When people reject Christ, their hearts are cold to him and they choose unbelief. They do so because that's what they really want to do. No one is forced into it. No one is, is kicking and screaming against their will. When people disbelieve, unbelieve, reject Christ, they do so willingly. Our unbelief follows the desires of our heart and we are held accountable. At the same time, God is sovereign and totally in control. He is not just merely watching down to see how things play out to decide his next move. It's not like playing chess where God's going, I, I'm not sure what you're going to do, and so I'm going to wait for you to move, and then I'm really good, and I'll circumvent what you're doing. He's never watching how things play out in order to decide his next move. His next move has already been decided. And the Bible affirms both of these truths and tension. On one hand, human responsibility, and on the other hand over here, divine sovereignty. And they are held up together as parallel, mutually inclusive truths. It's like a suspension bridge. By show of hand, how many of you have seen the Golden Gate Bridge in person? Show of hands. It's pretty spectacular, right? It's moving. The pictures don't do it justice. It's one of the most famous suspension bridges in the world. And when you look at it, you'll see there are these two massive cables anchored on either side of the one mile wide Golden Strait. And it's held together, held up by two steel towers. And then there's that iconic, carefully engineered draping curve. And it bears the weight of the suspension system, the roadway, and all the vehicle and foot traffic. And there is a tension on either side holding up that bridge. If there were too much tension, the towers would collapse and the bridge would go under. But at the same time, if there was too little tension, the roadway would sink down into the water. There is a carefully designed tension that creates balance and order so that you can cross the Golden Strait on the Golden Gate Bridge. And it's the same way here. God has designed carefully, masterfully, beautifully, human responsibility on the one hand and divine sovereignty on the other. And the Bible repeatedly, we could just flip through the Bible 
over and over and over. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty, meshed together in a way that sometimes is hard for us to understand, but the Bible says, yes, they are both true, balanced and ordered by the tension. If it was too much, it would be too heavy-handed. If it was too little, it'd be up in the air. We are responsible for the decisions and the free choices that we make. And God is sovereign and totally in control. Both are true. We are responsible for our belief or our unbelief in Jesus. And we're held accountable for our decisions. And it's also true that God is totally and completely sovereign over belief and unbelief. How does it fit together? I have no idea. I didn't design it. I didn't build the bridge. I'm just telling you what scriptures teach. God's plan for unbelief and belief happens according to his will and for his glory. And the Bible affirms both. So are humans responsible for every decision we make? Yes. Is God sovereign and totally in control? Yes. And he planned it this way regardless of our ability to understand it. He didn't consult you and me, did he? No. Now you might be wondering, why would God write unbelief into his story? And I think that is a great question. How could it possibly bring him glory? And I am sure that there are 10,000, and maybe that's even a low number, reasons that God has that I just simply don't see. Or even if God sat me down and explained it to me, I'd go, okay, rewind and explain it to me like I'm an eight-year-old, right? Because I just don't have the capacity to understand. But there is one reason that the Bible points to. It's really the only one the Bible gives. And friends, it's the only one that you and I need. Here is the stark reality. All of us, every single one of us in this room, have lived out in our unbelief and sinned in various ways throughout our life. And the reality is, is all of our unbelief, all of our sin should lead to our rejection. Our rejection to God should, without any wiggle room, lead to our condemnation. But God is rich in mercy and love, and our rejection and unbelief becomes the setting for the greatest plot twist the world has ever known. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus is rejected so that you and I can be accepted. Remember what Isaiah said? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But here's that plot twist. He was pierced for our transgressions, not his. He was crushed for our iniquities, not his. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is despised and rejected so you and I can be cherished and accepted. He experiences the ultimate conflict so you and I can experience enduring peace. Jesus was crushed so you could be made whole. Jesus is afflicted 
so you can be forgiven. And when I have those moments, and friends, I promise you, I have those moments where I cannot understand the intricacies of God's purposes. When I am staring into the night sky or lying awake at night and I just don't understand, I always go back to the cross because there it was settled and there I know that I am loved by God. It's the only evidence and proof that I need. And it's at that place that I give up my glory for his. And it's at that place that I give up my unbelief for belief. And that's where I want to end the sermon today. We've been talking a lot about the nature and reality of unbelief, but that's not where John ends his passage. That's not where John ends his summary. He ends with a call to belief. Quickly look with me at verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now remember I told you back in verse 36 that Jesus had departed from the public eye and had hid himself until he was betrayed and arrested, right? These words of Christ were spoken at some other point and for the purpose of a call to believe, John includes the last, these words of Jesus to give us a call to belief. He's saying, I've given you this treatise on unbelief so that you would recognize it, know what it is, but not stay there. That's why John ends this passage with a call to belief. Before it's over, John says, put your faith in Jesus. And I love that it begins with the words, whoever. So I don't have to know you or your background or your story. Guess what? Every one of you in this room matches whoever. Because whoever is anyone, right? Jesus says, whoever believes in me, said it in 45, 44, 45, and 46. And in 47, he says, anyone. This is an open invitation to anyone and everyone. Whoever. And this is a real invitation that you really can receive and accept. And if you're hearing these words right now, you really can take an honest look at Christ and put your faith in him. And Jesus says, when you do that, not only are you united to me, but you are reconciled to God the Father. When we receive and believe in Jesus, we become sons and daughters of light, united to God the Father through Christ the Son, and we receive eternal life. But the opposite is true as well. When we reject and disbelieve in Jesus, we remain in our darkness, condemned and separated from God the Father, and we receive death. So how do we move from unbelief to belief? Jesus gives us two action words. He says to look and to listen. In verse 45 and 46, Jesus, just reminded, us, Jesus reminded us that he is the light of the world and we're invited to look and see him. 45, he says, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Friends, wherever you are in your journey of faith, no matter if you're coming from a place of hardened uh, unbelief or even thriving right now in your belief, 
We grow in our faith by looking to Jesus. It's how we grow. So when you find that sin abounds and you're struggling, look to Christ. Where you find areas of unbelief in your heart, look to Christ. Second thing he says, listen to his word. In verses 47 to 48, Jesus said, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus saying, I have spoken. That's the word that will judge you. He's given us his word so that we can read them. Friends, it is impossible to grow in faith apart from the word of God. If you're just sitting around on the couch going, God, I wish my faith would grow. He's going, open up the book. We are a people. Christians are a people of the word. The word of God is powerful. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is the living and active word of God that is able to produce life in you. If you are stagnant in your faith, I have one question. When is the last time you opened up the book? How are you doing with that? Have you been investing time into God's word? That's why at Seven Mile Road, we read God's word. We study God's word. We memorize God's word and we listen to his word preached because we want to hear his words and be transformed by them. And as you invest your time into God's word, you will grow in knowledge and in love and in faith in Jesus. Friends, as often as you look and listen to Jesus, your unbelief will be transformed into belief. So friends, let's be among the whoever who believe in Jesus and find life in his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that it is alive and active. God, thank you for the sober reality check that we are born into this world with an unbelieving But God, I pray that it would not stay there, that we would not remain in darkness so that whoever believes in him would find life. So God, would you do what only you can do? Would you soften hearts? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of Christ today? Help us as we uh, look and listen to Jesus to have faith in his name. We love you and trust you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.